Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Avine and for today's episode we will be discussing strikes and trade unions. I'm joined by Kevin Doherty, who is the Union Services Officer for the Northern Ireland branch of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Could you give us a quick overview of the Strikes Minimum Service Levels Bill that's going through its readings at the minute? Yeah. First of all, I should point out that the bill has finished its passage through the House of Lords and had its third reading yesterday. So the Lords have made some important amendments to the bill, which I'll comment upon later. But as it was originally drafted and railroaded through Parliament, the bill proposes to further restrict, if not fatally undermine, the right of workers in certain sectors to take strike action for better paying conditions or to protect their jobs and their current conditions. So under the minimum service levels bill, when a trade union intends to take strike action, an employer will be able to instruct certain members to break the strike and carry on working, thereby reducing the effectiveness of the strike. It essentially gives employers the power to requisition workers, something not seen in Britain since the Second World War. The power that not even the courts have, as judges are forbidden by statute to order workers to work against their will during a strike. It's under the Trade Union Labour Relations Consolidation Act 1992 that no court can, and I quote, compel any employee to do any work or attend any place of work. So the bill applies to workers in the health, education, transport, fire and rescue services, border security and nuclear decommissioning. So in these sectors, the employer may give a work notice to a trade union in relation to any strike seven days before the action commences, which names people required to work during the strike and specifies the work to be carried out by them to ensure minimum service levels are maintained. Should those names not go into work, they will lose their legal protection from unfair dismissal. And so they're faced with either break the strike or be dismissed. The employer must consult the union on the work notice, but is under no obligation to seek agreement of the trade union. And once the work notice is issued, then the union has seven days to take reasonable steps, as it says in the law, to ensure that the named workers comply with the notice. The bill does not define what are reasonable steps, but if the union fails to comply, the strike could be deemed unlawful. All those taking part will lose their protection from unfair dismissal, and the union could be sued by the employer for losses up to £1 million. Given its significance, the bill itself is quite short only seven pages long, as the important detail is not in the primary legislation. Instead, the skeleton bill gives government ministers the power to set out all relevant law and subsequent regulations, secondary legislation, thus avoiding full parliamentary scrutiny. So it is government, through the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Kemi Badenoch as it is now, not parliament that will make regulations to determine the levels of minimum service required and the boundaries of the six sectors mentioned in the bill. And they could potentially be either be public or private sectors. We know the private sector operates in all those sectors. So it's quite an ambiguous and far-reaching piece of legislation. How will this affect trade unions in their work and the right to strike more generally across the UK? Well, it really is about crippling the right to strike. First of all, it's part of a string of legislation that's been introduced since the 1980s when the Conservatives came into power. And then if you look at it when it's with a couple of other pieces of legislation that have recently been passed, there was the 2016 Trade Union Act, which covered those same categories as are in the, the Trade Union Bill, 
they made it more difficult for them to take industrial action. First of all, you had to have 40% of eligible membership voting for strike action, and then you had to get over 50% of them voting to take action. So those restrictions were reduced. Then in 2022, two pieces of legislation were pushed through again by the Tory majority that allowed age employers to bring in agency workers for the first time to undermine striking workers. And also it increased the damages, the civil liabilities that could be imposed on trade unions should they be found to be in breach of the law and that can sue trade unions for losses for up to £1 million. So there's a big concern about this in that the requirement of trade unions to take reasonable steps within seven days to ensure that those named in the work notice comply with it. We're not sure what these reasonable steps are because it's for the Secretary of State to lay out in secondary regulations. So the Houses of Parliament are being asked to decide on something when they don't know the detail. This means that the trade union will be required by an employer acting with the authority of the state to take steps actively to undermine their own strike. This is a strike trade union members have voted for in a ballot with highly legal thresholds and such an obligation is unprecedented in British law and possibly unparalleled in a liberal democracy. It's unclear, however, what a union can be required to do. For example, does it mean that the trade union must notify its members about the work notice within seven days of receiving it? And if so, why should the trade union be required to act on the employer's behalf in this way? Does it mean that the trade union must instruct the members and officials identified in the work notice that they must attend work and cross a picket line if necessary? Must the trade unions issue pickets with a list of names of identified workers with an instruction that steps should not be taken to persuade them not to cross picket lines? Is the trade union going to be asked to discipline members and if necessary expel any members or officials who act contrary to the instructions and refuse to cross picket lines? This is all going to cause total chaos. It also could be used to undermine the trade union in that the employer could identify trade union reps and officials who are organising the strike and put their names on the list to force the organisers to cross through picket lines. And if they refuse, they'll be dismissed or they'll lose credibility of the members. So it's a fierce piece of legislation. There's also in terms of the consequences for trade unions if they fail to comply. If the employer decides to challenge the trade union on the back of a failure to comply with the work notice, the court can decide that fail to take reasonable steps. The court can take the trade union to court for a maximum of £1 million, as I mentioned before, under this under this new legislation that was introduced last year. But it also threat to the workers, the people who don't cross the picket line when they're instructed to, they could lose their jobs. But also, if the strike is declared illegal, then everybody potentially can lose their jobs. So it's a major, major threat to the trade union movement. And currently it's within those six broad sectors, but there's a potential for that to ripple out into other areas as well. So it really is an authoritarian and a liberal and possibly a legal bill that's being pushed forward in that it's in contravention of the European Convention on Human Rights, particularly Articles 11, the right to strike, and Article 4, which is about forced labour. The powers within the bill that allows employers to requisition workers, could this potentially be in contravention of Article 4 as well? Could you see a case being taken on that basis or on the basis of the legislation potentially going against international standards, like for the International Labour Organization? Yeah, well, when the bill's passed, it's at that stage that you're possibly going to get challenges under the European Convention. But certainly the, the TUC have been raising it with the International Labour Organization and they have a disputes facility within that. So as I understand it, it's been raised with the ILO. So there will be challenges to it legally. Do you think that the legislation is indicative of a wider attack on trade unions and the right to strike, given that it's been in the media so much and there's been quite a lot of disparaging coverage of the right to strike and trade unions more generally? 
Well, yeah, that, there's nothing new in that. And I'm hardly objective on this, but you know, you, you can look back at the history of media coverage of industrial action and trade unions. And, and it's always the trade unions are portrayed negatively. Like even the way you have the journalists or the media commentators, when they refer to trade unions, they refer to trade union barons or trade union bosses and ignore the fact that they're democratic organizations and people have to vote to go out and strike and trade unions kind of force people out and strike. So when people go out and strike, they have made the decision. It's a democratic decision and they're angry enough to lose pay to fight for something. But this hostility goes way, way back. You can take it back to 1926, whenever the BBC was just an audio broadcaster. But when that general strike, we had the Baldwin government and they wanted the BBC. And the BBC was at that stage maintaining its impartiality, but Baldwin was putting pressure on them. And a certain Winston Churchill, who was the junior minister responsible, was recommending that the BBC be brought under direct control of the government to stop it being unbiased during the 1926 strike. And that was a massive dispute. But then you can leap forward to the minor strike. At that time, we were still in a Cold War situation. So they were able to identify trade unions as the enemy within, particularly the National Union of Mine Workers who were in dispute. They were able to point to the leader, Arthur Scargill, who was a, a member of the Labour Party, but had declared himself a Marxist. They were also able to target uh, Mick McGahey, who was a, a leader of the Scottish NUA, and he was a communist. So they were able to portray these as uh, they were bringing down the state. And this was an action which we now look back on in history. This was the destruction of the coal industry. And these people were fighting to protect the coal industry and the jobs. 20 pits were to close and 30,000 miners were to be kicked out and they fought. But the media, there's a classic case of the BBC actually reversing footage in, in a, a dispute and they called the Battle of Orgreaves where you had 8,000 striking miners turned up to try and block lorries coming into the Orgrave plant and there was 6,000 police there. And the way the BBC portrayed it was that the miners were attacking, were throwing stones at the police, and then the police reacted to reverse the footage. But actually what happened was the police were deliberately provoking them, and they went in and attacked them. This came out eventually a few years later after there was an inquiry into it, but it showed the media bias that's been going on. But I think things are changing now. The Cold War's gone. It's very difficult for governments to portray the trade unions as the enemy within anymore. And we have the situation where people are now in a cost-of-living crisis. Everybody's feeling the pain. Everybody's conditions and pay are being pulled down. And people are looking to trade unions. And they support people going out and strike. I remember back in 2019 when the health workers went out and strike, when the assembly was suspended. And a lot of the media were running around trying to find critics of the strike at that time. And they couldn't. Everybody that was coming onto the radio and the TV was supporting the health workers out in strike, and that has continued. The media are finding it difficult to find voices against industrial action at the moment now. With the case of the RMT, when the strike's on the rails, the BBC was called out again because it put out an article where a guy was claiming that he was a supporter of the trade unions, but the strike was stopping him getting home to see his son at Christmas. And then it was pointed out that actually there was bus services and had the reverse and drop that part of the footage out of it. So it's still going on. Now, it's not just the BBC. I've been attacking the BBC there, but we know that the media in this country and in the UK is owned by a small number of billionaires, and that's part of the problem. So they're hardly in favour of trade unions fighting for it, better pay for working people. Given that there has been the Public Order Bill, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is cracking down on the wider right to protest, do you think that this legislation could be used in conjunction with 
those other pieces of legislation as part of a crackdown, I suppose, on fundamental rights? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's all I need to say is yes. <laughs> We're dealing with a highly authoritarian government and like there are serious concerns being raised even within the parliamentary system itself about the way they are behaving. The use of skeleton bills such as this bill where we have very little detail in the primary legislation and all the meat crucial bits are coming in secondary legislation, which won't have to go through the parliamentary scrutiny of normal primary legislation. It'll just be introduced afterwards. As I understand it, one reading in the House of Parliament, one reading in the House of Lords can't be amended. The regulations can't be amended. So basically, people, they'll only be able to vote for or against it. And in those circumstances, normally it passes through. This process and the Henry VIII powers, which allow the Secretary of State in this bill to amend, repeal or revoke primary legislation introduced before this bill was introduced and also to override of parliament passed by the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Parliament are really dangerous for democracy and the devolved administrations. We could see a conflict between the Scottish government and the UK government if the Secretary of State decides to set minimum service levels in a dispute that's happening in Scotland, saving the Scottish Health Service, when the employer is the Scottish government, not the UK government. You know, so really serious concerns here. We know that the restrictions on picketing that have been introduced, and they're worse across the water than they are here, but we still have restrictions. But all these things are about clamping down on democracy. And it's interesting that the House of Lords Select Committees, there's two Select Committees of the House of Lords, have issued reports, one called, and the titles speak for themselves, Government by Diktat, a call to return power to Parliament, and the second one is democracy denied, the urgent need to rebalance power between Parliament and the executive. Now, this is the House of Lords, select committees that are issuing these reports. So there's concerns right across society here and the behaviour of the Conservative government. It doesn't bode well, given that the government has already overruled the Scottish Parliament on other matters. Yeah. I could definitely see them using the minimum service level bill to interfere in regional politics. Speaking of the devolved regions, although this doesn't apply to Northern Ireland, do you think it'll have an impact on the trade union movement here or potentially for support for strikes? I don't think it'll impact on support for strikes. We have been protected from the worst excesses of anti-trade union legislation by two factors here. Employment law is devolved in Northern Ireland, as you know, and we have had the stop-start arrangement of the Assembly, which means a lot of the legislation never reached us. But even if the Assembly was up and running, we have a different form of government. We have the mandatory coalition. So you don't have a situation like they have in Britain where you have a left or a right-wing government in power and them dictating the policies. Our coalition forces the parties to work together and trade union lobby lobbying of the political parties can block the worst excesses of politically, ideologically driven legislation against trade unions. We can do that here, so it's very helpful for us. So I can't see it coming in to Northern Ireland, even if the Assembly's up and running again, but it will have an impact on certain sectors the majority of the unions here are British-based trade unions. And if you look at the likes of health and the local government education authority, their pay comes through national negotiation structures. So you will have potentially industrial action called from head offices in London and restrictions could be imposed on them under the minimum services legislation, which could undermine the disputes here. And so it'll impact on disputes which are not affected by the minimum service level built here. But if the, the strikes are undermined across the water, then it's going to I mean, our strikes are pointless. So there is that effect that's going to be there on the back of it. But directly, I don't think it's going to come in. Think, you're back to the media again. I don't know, have you seen any commentary in the media about the minimum service levels bills? Nothing. 
this is the problem. This is the other way that, that the media deals with trade unions, ignores the trade union movement. So this is an important piece of legislation. There's 5.5 million trade union members in Britain. There's 200,000 here. We're the largest civil society organization in Northern Ireland. But this bill will not just affect the 5.5 million union members. There's a potential to affect others on the back of this bill. It is so important to working people. But there's no mention of it in the media. What is that about? They don't want us to know that our rights are being removed. You know, so we're back to this sort of media bias. Just finally, given everything that's facing the trade union movement, you know, all these pieces of legislation and the media bias, etc., what can the trade union movement do looking to the future to try and ensure that the right to strike and the effectiveness of strikes are protected? That's a that's a, a big question and you know, it really is we're relying upon a Labour government or a friendly government being in power. The Labour government has already declared that they will overturn this bill if it's passed, if they get into power, which is positive force. The country's in an economic crisis. The way to deal with it, this economic crisis is really, they should be pulling together. They should be working with trade unions to look at how to increase productivity, innovation, protect jobs, develop research. You know, this is how it should be done to get out of a crisis. Instead, they use powers to attack working people. They use powers to stop them getting a pay increase so that they can survive in the, these difficult times, but also think what impact that's going to have. If people can't afford to spend money, that's going to impact the real economy. If people aren't buying, it's going to lead to an economic to depression, deeper economic depression. So it just doesn't make sense. But we need to build a consensus. The trade union needs to build a consensus to be saying no, there is another way of doing things. Now, there's no doubt unions will take legal action on this bill and they will challenge laws through legal action, but they also need to take lobbying through parliament and they need to take industrial action. People are now looking to trade unions more positively now and seeing them as the turn. I think the trade union move is going to grow in this crisis. You know, as long as it keeps in touch with the membership and actively campaigning for people, I think the best way it's going to defend rights. As I mentioned, the minimum service level bill is going through its third reading in the House of Lords and it has been amended successfully. There was cross-bench support. You had the Lords, you had the Liberals and Labour and some Tories actually were rebelling against the strikes minimum service levels legislation. So amendments have been made to it. And one of the amendments is that the protection from unfair dismissal will be maintained that it's going to remove the requirement on trade unions to encourage the members to break strikes. It's also restricting the scope of the bill to England. So this issue of devolved administrations is going to be dropped should those amendments be passed. So now it's due to go back to the House of Commons, probably in the end of May, though a date hasn't been set yet, as I understand. But then we're going to see what happens, whether the Tories are actually going to listen to the measured and constructive views that the Lords have applied to the bill or whether they're just going to ram it through and ignore the amendments that have been made to it. So there's a big question, and again, if the Tories do that, it'll show about their contempt for democracy, and it should be a wake-up call for all people interested in democracy if this happens. But if the amendments go through as it stands now, it will seriously undermine the bill, and it'll give the trade unions in England a stronger opportunity to fight against it. Kevin, thank you for joining us and for giving us some insight into the trade union movement. It's been a very insightful conversation. Thank you very much.